You are listening to the Social Science Kaleidoscope. Hey everyone, what's up? Welcome back to the Social Science Kaleidoscope with your host, Kalei. Um, have a very special episode planned for you all today. But before we dive into that, be sure to consider following us on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts now, along with anywhere else podcasts are found. Um, follow my socials um, on Instagram at KMLAIII or on Twitter at KMDLAI. The deal is with today's episode is I have a very special guest that I have successfully bribed. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, but he is a, just an amazing person, just passionate, hardworking, and a really nice person that I had the fortune of meeting during my time at research at the New York Fed. It's Brendan Moore. Woo! Yeah, just imagine the streamers popping up. It's been a while since I've talked to you. How have you been? Uh, it, it has been good. It, it's been uh, it, it was an unexpected <laughs> end to our uh, person uh, to person contact uh, that that fateful day in March when uh, they sent us home. And uh, at least speaking for myself, I thought that it was going to be some sort of a, a two week intermission and that I'd be back in my cube uh, on the fourth floor at 33 Liberty Street. And of course, <laughs> we know that's not how it worked out. But uh, it's definitely good to hear your voice again. We we've chatted a number of times since for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, finally, good to see you in person and not like over text message or messenger or whatever mm -hmm. the case is. So yeah, it's good mm -hmm. to hear that you're doing well. Um, so Brendan is, like I mentioned earlier, fellow RA from the New York Fed. Um, and I know some of the listeners out there might know who you are, but for the listeners who don't know who you are or what you're up to right now, why don't you uh, quickly introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm a first year PhD student uh, at Stanford University studying economics uh, before uh, I, I came out west. Uh, so I, you know, spent my whole life on the East Coast, uh, whether it was where I grew up. So I grew up in Bangor, Maine, uh, I spent all 18 years there, uh, graduated high school, Came to New York City, uh, did four years at uh, Columbia University, uh, majored in economics there. I uh, loved New York so much that I decided to, to stay uh, for, for gainful employment for two years and, and uh, joined Kevin uh, and, and a number of other excellent RAs at the, the New York Fed, so their research division, where we're just helping out economists uh, uh, pump out very important research. Glad to hear that you're doing well and then hopefully Stanford is going well. I have a lot of, you know, questions lined up just basically about your personal life and your personal journey um, and how you got into economics. And so I just kind of want to start with um, the very beginning of your education. Why did you want to study economics in the first place? Yeah, economics was not initially uh, a field that I considered too seriously, uh, especially I think when you first apply to colleges, they often want to at least have a sense of what major you're going to pursue. And for me at the time, I thought I wanted to go to law school. Um, and, you know, so that was, you know, pre-law, you can sort of do whatever you want. I planned to major in political science. Uh, I was fortunate to run into the fact that Columbia had this sort of joint major uh, where economics would join up with a whole bunch of different majors. You know, there's like an economics and computer science dual major. There's an economics uh, statistics double major or, or dual major rather. So it wasn't even a double major. It sort of condense it. And there was one interesting combination that caught my eye that was economics and philosophy. And for me, that sort of flanked each side of political science because on, on one end of political science, you have political philosophy. And, you know, you think about uh, people like Michael Sandel and, you know, who are basically philosophers, but also political science, uh, scientists. And then on the other end of it, you know, is more quantitative, is just trying to answer empirical questions and 
oftentimes uh, what the most quantitative political scientists are doing are uh, not all that different from what a lot of economists do. And so, so that to me uh, was interesting because it's like, okay, well, I can, I can sort of do this. Uh, I can get my fix of political science and, and then, uh, and be on my way. And just the more economics classes that I took, uh, the more I liked it. And I'd always sort of in the back of my mind also thought about, Oh, it would be fun to be a professor. You know, it'd be fun to, to teach college students. It would be fun to sort of, uh, be paid to research and investigate and learn about what you love because that's what uh, professors fundamentally do. And when I started asking around about what it took to be an economics professor, um, I was sort of jarred to find out how much math uh, was involved. So I, I started doing a very basic data entry research assistantship with a professor part-time in the spring of my freshman year. And I was asking him about uh, the path to a, an economics PhD. And he told me to take as much math as you possibly can, uh, which was certainly a piece of advice that many students in that situation or would get but it, it just it just sort of it took me aback and i, I sort of uh, resisted it and said no i, I don't want to do that, I mean, that that's not i i because genuinely i thought that my last math class was going to be the, the calculus course that i took um <laughs> as a senior it was as a senior in high school and then and then like okay if i have to do this econ um philosophy uh, dual major then i have to um do uh, you have to take up the multivariate calculus, but nothing beyond that. So I, I, I was trying to stick with the minimum. And then as I, uh, but, but as I took more economics department uh, classes and got exposed to that, um, I, I got more interested in it. And so then I decided to put the fixed investment of, you know, taking linear algebra and differential equations and uh, understanding that I had to work my way up to real analysis. And, and uh, so that uh, just the more I liked economics, the more I uh, was sort of able to tolerate the pain of those math courses because because math does not come naturally to me yeah. i mean it's not uh i you know i i have gotten good enough at it mainly just through the the coursework that i can i'm surviving the first year right now I, they haven't kicked me out yet okay. <laughs> um, that's good like they bring you into a phd program and you, you do like three weeks of, of quote-unquote math camp to brush up on these tools before starting the year mm -hmm. but but i've just said like the whole year feels like math because <laughs> it, it's just all you're doing is just a lot of very complicated algebra that's so that's uh yeah but so, so yeah, that, that was, that was the path. And then, you know, keeping it short, but yeah, like, like once I got, I got an internship at the federal reserve in Boston. Um, uh, absolutely love that. What research economists do. Uh, I, I met Kevin in the summer of 2017 when we were, we were both uh, research interns sitting next to each other in, in a small room yeah. at the New York fed. And I, I absolutely love that as well. So then like once I got those fed internships and sort of saw what research was like, uh, I was, I was hooked and I, I never turned back. Was there like a particular professor in economics during your undergraduate uh, career that you wanted to kind of highlight or that kind of brought you along? Or was it more, um, I guess, just the classes you took? Yeah, that, that's a good, it's always good to recognize like the, the, the many people who sort of like are, are play these small roles in your journey. Uh, for me, I would say I would credit Miguel Arquiola, who does, he studies the economics of education at Columbia. And by the time that I took his class, uh, the spring of my junior year, so he taught a seminar for undergraduates on the economics of education. And uh, at that point, I think I already knew I wanted to do a PhD, but he uh, he was just an excellent mentor. He really invested in me, um, especially at a place like Columbia, where it's, it's they, you know, you're sort of competing for faculty resources with graduate students who you know, understandably are higher on the totem pole. Uh, he gave me a lot of uh, time and, and time of day, and I was able to uh, talk with him a lot. Uh, about a whole host of things, and, and he really encouraged my my uh, pursuit of this. And uh, and moreover, he even put me in contact with other 
faculty members at Columbia who I ended up collaborating with, and I'm still collaborating with. Uh, we can we can talk about that later. But you know, without actually meeting him and, and you know him sort of getting me this connection uh, based off of what he knew my interests were, um, I, I wouldn't be working on the the things that I am today. So I, I definitely want to highlight uh, highlight Miguel, and I've, I've been talking to him over email recently, and he's actually teaching that same course right now in person at, at Columbia, cool. um, which I, I didn't know how, how much in, in person instruction they're doing. So. Yeah, that's cool. So, so I guess, I guess, I guess that one professor really helped you a lot, along with, I guess, the numerous opportunities you had. Um, so, I mean, that's that's a very interesting personal journey, and it's very, it's, it, I'm very happy to hear that it's kind of worked out so far along the way. You know, given the many challenges that you've you've faced, I briefly want to actually just touch up on like math courses because I completely resonate you with you when you said that. Oh, I thought high school was the last time. Uh, I was going to take math because, I mean, that was that was honestly my thought as well. I thought Calculus mm -hmm. BC was the last time I'll take math, and clearly that was not the case. Um, I just kind of want to go through, like, how did you deal with the adversities you faced in math? And you, you mentioned math is not your thing, um, so I just kind of want to just take me through that. Yeah, I remember it was the, the spring of my freshman year is when I was taking uh, Calc 3, because I actually I took... I think I took I retook Calc one in the fall of my freshman year, uh, just as, as a as a sort of easing into college type thing, just to make sure I had a good grounding. And then Calc three, I just I just found like incredibly hard because it was uh, even though conceptually I look back on it and I'm like oh I don't know why this was so like the the concept of like a partial derivative isn't um, that hard once you've got the notion of a derivative down. But I think that just some of the uh, I, I don't know. It just went fast for me, and, and I was struggling. And I remember I got a terrible grade on the first midterm, and um, I remember I, I turned to some like like tutoring resources that um, like the Center for Student Advising had, and I was like really really nervous about that because I remember when that same professor I referred to earlier, who I was doing the data entry for, he said do as much math as possible. I remember he said that like you know if he goes, have you taken Calc three yet? And I said uh, I'm taking it right now. He said. Okay, well, you, you better get an A. <laughs> there's, there's nothing else you can do, and so I, I was uh, I was not on track for that at the time, and so I, I ended up I ended up pulling out uh, an a, a minus, I believe, um, and I I obviously understand uh, you know Lagrange multipliers well enough um, where you know I was able to carry that for the rest of my math career, but it was just a type of thing that I think I once I got a better grasp of what economists do, that was just enough of an incentive for me to sort of overcome the uh lack of intrinsic passion for the mathematics stuff i, I over the years have gotten to appreciate the beauty of math but it still doesn't come naturally naturally to me but i think like anything the more you do of it uh the more you do find uh specific beauty in it so cool yeah that's that's good to hear that you've kind of overcome that initial challenge like yeah i agree with you getting getting the foot in the door is always the hardest part no matter what that thing is it could be like finding a job it could be math in this case but um but yeah it's good to hear that you're doing well ha has your relationship with math changed in any way outside of like appreciation like do you love it a lot more or do you is it still like uh i prefer not to touch it if i don't have to i uh i've gotten to appreciate i've gotten to appreciate how powerful of a tool it is because i think i used to also be of the view that okay well if we can just find enough quasi experiments and, and sort of do the you know, Josh Angris credibility re revolution for all these important economic problems, then like you don't need to be this math and modeling expert because, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, a lot of the math is used for, for modeling. And I really gained a, a much deeper appreciation, um, both in the latter part of college, but then also my years at the Fed, 
uh, a deeper appreciation for like the, the importance of modeling for answering very important economic questions. So, so that, that, that's a way in which I've, I've uh, embraced it more. Cool, cool, cool. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, moving on from college and then the RA ship at the Fed, um, I just want to kind of dive into uh, your first year of courses. That's almost, almost not really, but like you're like, how does it work in Stanford? Is it like halfway done already or like? Yeah, so we're, uh, I think, on week 17 of 30 total weeks of the year divided into three 10 week quarters. And so I'm, I'm happy to say that I'm, I'm over halfway done now. And yeah, it's it's uh, the for me it's I'm taking the core classes of uh, econometrics and microeconomics and macroeconomics, and uh, students that are smarter than me or had more training than me uh, will wave out of certain specific courses. Uh, and I've I've seen some of this content before in, in some of my undergraduate coursework, but uh, it, it's definitely it's good to get this uh, foundation. So it, it, it's uh, it's like eating your vegetables. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I, I, I always knew I I always knew that this would be what I'm going through here, and it's it's uh, certainly not as enjoyable as I anticipate the sure. later later few years used to be. But um, you know, it, it's it's uh, I'm I'm already already over halfway home. So. Okay, that's good. But um, I guess nonetheless, it's like kind of on par with your expectations of at least the first year of what grad school is supposed to be. Um, is there anything that maybe exceeded your expectations, maybe something where your expectations aren't met within your first year of grad school? I would just credit uh, the faculty have done a really good job of uh, committing to, you know, because of course, you know, contemporaneously, you also go going through this and doing it. Um, pretty much all virtually. Mm -hmm. So uh, <laughs> you, you sort of wonder how, oh, okay, how are I'm always someone who sort of believes that, that humans don't like to change their habits. I, I just think that that's sort of a, a fact that uh, sometimes economists themselves um, sort of uh, uh, underestimate how uh, difficult it is for people to sort of change their habits and learn new technologies. But the economists uh, who are teaching me in this first year have done a very good job with it. So I'm, I'm really uh, appreciative of the lengths they've gone to try and make this experience as good as it can be under the circumstances. And in some cases, because of the technology, it's actually better because all these lectures are, are recorded, either the live sessions or pre-recorded sessions. And so I can you know, go back and rewatch part of the lecture that if it were live, I just would have to rely on my, my memory and my notes. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. So um, I guess we're going to move on to a more, uh, I, I guess I would want to say fun part because uh, we're going to put aside eating the vegetables of your, you know, <laughs> typical micro macro econometrics, though important. We're going to put that aside for a bit. I want to talk more about your interest in economics and specifically what type of um, field are you like particularly interested in? Yes, I'm moving from the vegetables to the meat and potatoes. Yes, um, exactly. I, I, yeah, I'm particularly interested, in, as you know, Kevin, in, in labor economics. Uh, and, you know, just the, the study of how, why do people earn what they earn? You know, how, how do people find jobs? What are the consequences of job loss? Uh, how do public policies interact with the labor market? So all these sort of questions that labor economists try to tackle, uh, I've just always been really, really drawn to. And, and Kevin can attest to this even back in the, uh, you know, when, when we were interns, I just was really drawn to these questions. And I always received advice from various people who know much more than I do about, about economics and have had much more experience in the field. They would always say that, oh, well, yeah, your interests are probably going to change. Don't get too locked into one area. Just try and learn as much as you can. And I, I've like taken uh, all that good faith advice. And yet my, my passion for it has not changed one, one iota. <laughs> if anything, I've, I've sort of uh, solidified my, my interest even more within labor economics. And I'm just really excited to tackle uh, 
uh, a whole uh, host of questions about the job market and about uh, you know how people make their living. That's good. That's good. How did you get interested into labor economics, right? Because it's not like we we say out of the blue, oh, I think I want to tackle these problems. There might be, is there kind of a story that drives that? Yeah, right. People's formative experiences, uh, I think, often uh, direct what they want to study in economics, and I'm certainly no exception to that. Uh, so where I grew up uh, in, in Bangor, Maine, so that's like, it's like the Penobscot River Valley. It's It's kind of the uh northern but central-ish part of the the state uh not as populated uh it was once like considered actually the bangor maine was considered the lumber capital of the world now, this is going back like 100 years but even more recently in my lifetime there were still uh quite a lot of like paper mills that provided uh stable good paying work to people who oftentimes only had a high school education and indeed it propped up the entire towns you'd have these towns of Five or ten thousand people that were uh, that happened to be on the river, and they had uh, a thriving paper mill there, and that just fed back into the uh, local economy. There were these you know, virtuous uh, circles and um, you know multiplier effects. And I remember from two thousand eight to twenty fourteen, so like especially formative years because I I am I'm as old as I'll ever be living in Bangor, Maine. You know, from like middle school to high school, there were like a, a, a six or seven paper mills of the like 10 within an hour drive of my house all shut down for various reasons. I mean, I think a lot of it was like global, a declining global demand for paper, but then also, you know, there were these paper mills in Brazil that were so much more efficient. They were like literally mobile. They would, they would actually like, like cut down all the lumber in a certain radius. And then like, they would like move and like the, the, the plant would move. Uh, and so the technology was pretty remarkable, but so for a whole host of factors and of course the great recession, um, you just had like this devastating series of, of job losses and, and people that I knew. I had an assistant baseball coach who had worked at, at uh, one of the mills for, for like 20 years. And uh, so I, I, I sort of personally saw the, the consequences of job loss in, in my own life, thankfully not anyone in my own family. Mm-hmm. And that, that just sort of motivated me to look at the labor market from that perspective in particular because, you know, unemployment is not only uh, bad for the economy in the sense that, you know, people – cut back on their consumption and they, they don't spend as much, but uh, it, it's just, it's uh, incredibly nerve wracking. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty about when the next job's gonna, uh, gonna come. Uh, we, we know that it has real effects on, on mental health and happiness. You know, p- people report that uh, uh, they're, they're not happy at all when they're unemployed. So there's a whole lot of, uh, you know, uh, human and, and, and psychological tolls to it as well. Of course, there, there are other reasons as well. I mean, so like the, uh, the, the dignity of work is uh, is one of the seven themes of, of Catholic social teaching. I'm a, I'm a practicing Catholic, and so you know, there's a whole lot of like writings by various uh, popes in the last hundred years in their encyclicals or their, their papal letters, uh, just uh, talking about the, how important the dignity of work is. Um, and and it's like the pandemic has even uh, reinforced my view, where I think the pandemic has taught us that we rely deeply on workers that we often overlook. You know, from like delivery and maintenance and warehouse workers truckers and nurses and people doing childcare. So uh, that's uh, all these experiences sort of together. But I, I guess if you're going to ground, it's probably, you know, growing up in Bangor mm. and uh, it's everything uh, as I've sort of progressed through, I, I often will view through that, the, the prism of, of how we can make the world better for people who are working. Cool. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a great story. Um, it's really cool to see how your childhood has kind of impacted 
um, the kind of uh, trajectory that you want to take in life. And that's something definitely we always want to see and something that feels good, you know. So I actually just kind of want to get your input because uh, at least in the purposes of my show right now, you're kind of like the expert in labor economics, whether you label that yourself or not. And so I just kind of want to get your take or your opinions and your viewpoints of what do you think are the biggest problems or biggest topics that are tackled by labor economists today? I, I think one of the most concerning areas of labor economics that I don't really know what the best way to address it is, but it's certainly a concerning trend in the last 40 years is uh, occupational polarization and, and particularly catalyzed by uh, what's called routine bias technological change. So if you sort of imagine three bins of occupations, you sort of have your your high skill professional occupations, you have your your sort of middle skill uh, you know, production and, and clerical tasks, and then you have sort of your, your uh, lower skill uh, retail or in-person service sector, uh, which sort of correspond, you can sort of map those both onto skills and then onto low, medium and high wages. What we've seen in the last 40 years is a very rapid contraction of those middle skill jobs, administrative and, and production. And then you've seen uh, a rapid rise in both the high skill and the low skill types of jobs. So that, that's just how labor demand has evolved over the last 40 years. And economists uh, such as uh, David Otter and Doron Asimoglu and Richard Bernane and Frank Levy all talk about how this uh, is probably due to uh, skills bias technological change, but particularly routine bias technological change. So the idea that the technology is uh, differentially displacing tasks that were done by middle skill workers. And unlike certain types of technology that can enhance it, uh, a worker's productivity and actually increase their demand for what they do, it, it just uh, it takes up enough of what the, the, the automation or I should just say the technology more broadly uh, takes over enough of a task such that the, the entire job sort of goes away. So that's why you've been seeing this uh, declining relative employment share in these middle school jobs. And so for me, that's just, it's very, I find that a concerning trend uh, because I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a macro trend. It's been going on for a long time. It's that I don't believe that there's any uh, clear, simple policy solution. I mean, a lot of people, I think in response to this very trend, you, you sort of hear a lot of uh, discussion around like a universal basic income. And for me, that does uh, is sort of off the mark for a couple reasons. I mean, number one, it's not clear that the universal basic income like shifts the labor demand in any fundamental way that, you know, you have these technologies that are still going to be uh, differentially uh, sort of displacing tasks in this middle of the distribution. So I like the UBI doesn't really do anything on that front. And then on the other front, I mean, so it, it's, you know, the universal basic income is just very, uh, it's, it's uh, you know, designed to be more stingy. So, I mean, the, the people who have sort of gone from these jobs that were in the middle school of the distribution and then they either fall out of the labor force entirely, so they're, they're, they're not getting um, any labor income, or if they just take up a, a much more low-paying job, it's not clear how much the UBI is really going to help them. And of course, it's the issue of targeting. So for a couple of reasons, I don't, I don't uh, particularly think that the UBI is the compelling response. Uh, to be more succinct, skill bias technological change is uh, one of the issues that I have thought a lot about. And I, I hope at some point in my research career to uh, write papers and then continue to sort of think about it. And uh, also just think about what policy responses we can do to address it because it 
directly maps onto mm-hmm. what people sort of see as like the decline of, of the, the middle class, where you have this sort of increasing uh, share of uh, highly skilled college educated workers, but then also uh, a somewhat increasing share of people who are doing jobs that are closer to the to the minimum wage that are uh, not as productive. And uh, it, it's, it's just harder to make those jobs uh, you know, more, more stable or more uh, well remunerated. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your insight. Um, I do realize that, you know, based on all the things that you've been saying about displaced workers um, and kind of skills, uh, I see that at least on your personal website that your personal research as of right now kind of touches on these topics, maybe not necessarily suggest a policy, but definitely, you know, attempts to study these things. What does your work in displaced workers look like right now? Um, what kind of uh, ideas do you have for in the future? Um Take me through the research um, agenda here, your research agenda. I, I appreciate it. So I'll, I'll say that um, this is work that sort of started out of my my senior thesis, but um, is, is you know continued through and uh, is joint work with Judy Scott Clayton and Veronica Manaya, both of Columbia's Teachers College. Uh, they're, they're faculty members there, and uh, we have uh, two different papers that study distinct issues uh, using the same data set from uh, workers in Ohio, where basically, so we're able to show, we think a few facts is given. Number one, when uh, it's, it's economists have known for the last 25 or 30 years that when workers lose their job in a mass layoff and they've been working at that job for a long time, their earnings never really recover to the same level on average it's pretty remarkable. You can sort of see these graphs and the earnings scarring, as economists call it, is persistent even like 10 years after you lose your job, which is uh, pretty remarkable. It's, it's understandable that you would have a drop in earnings uh, for perhaps the year or two after. But the fact that these scars persist show that displacement is very, very costly. So the first paper that we have, uh, that Judy and I have, is we sort of are trying to dig into why we think this is. And so we look at uh, the effect of firms and the role of firms in the labor market. This is something that economists, more labor economists are are, uh, studying the role of the firm in the labor market. And I think it's a very exciting development. So what we find is that a quarter of that earnings scar where you sort of never get back to the same level you initially were, is just due to the fact that the types of firms that displace workers often are like higher rent firms or they, they have a higher firm premium. So like the idea that uh, two different firms might pay the same, like identical worker, different wages. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. Like the, one of the firms could be more productive. Uh, they, there could be like a, a, a rent sharing agreement, like a union that, that, that gives a higher wage to the worker. Uh, it could be compensating differentials. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why uh, two different firms might pay the same worker differently. And we just show that for displaced workers, a, a sizable chunk of that scarring effect is just due to the fact that they are displaced from a more generous firm, and then they find reemployment in the long run with firms that don't have as generous pay policies. Mm-hmm. And so th- that, that that's one of our, our papers. And then uh, the other paper is sort of gets at this idea of like transitioning uh, occupations and, and or trying to upskill. And it, there's a lot of different ways to sort of think about this question. And uh, a lot of people have. And as it, so this is by no means uh, necessarily the best way to look at it. But we just wanted to look at this one dimension where we were fortunate that we have this data of displaced workers from Ohio, uh, we have it linked to educational records at the post-secondary level. So we see 
for every single worker in Ohio, we see if, they, if they've ever attended uh, public college in Ohio. That can be community college, that can be a four-year college, it can even be a technical school, uh, as long as it's publicly funded. And so when we see those enrollment records, what we then ask is, okay, uh, how many displaced workers then go and receive some sort of retraining through the public university system? Because you would think, especially if you're being displaced in, in industries that are in decline, or you're just sort of fearful that you're not going to be able to get a job in the same industry in which you've worked for some of these reasons that we've you know talked about, whether it's like skill-biased technological change or, uh, it, you know, there's uh, automation and trade are often just like the, the two sort of broad concepts and people say, okay, this is like uh, particularly hard on manufacturing jobs, but there's a lot of other forces on a, a lot of other effects of different jobs. Uh, so, you know, if you're faced with that force, okay, maybe you go and you retrain and you try and go to a different industry. So we just wanted to answer the simple question of, well, how many of these displaced workers even go back to school at all, mm -hmm. let alone finish a degree, let alone actually make the transition to a new industry and maybe they become gainfully employed down the line. So just to answer that first question, we are able to exploit the linkages in this data. And we find that for every 100 displaced workers, only about one end up going back to the college uh, at all. Um, and, and even then, like among those people, not everyone gets a degree. Uh, and, and when I say college, again, that could be two year, that could be four year college. Mm -hmm. So it's a really uh, tiny fraction of, of workers. And we can subset it on a whole bunch of different workers. So like the ones you might be most concerned about might be manufacturing uh, workers who are displaced from their jobs. And even for them, it's like for every 100 displaced manufacturing workers, I believe it's like 2.5 uh, workers go back to college. So it's higher than the average, which is encouraging, but it's still quite low. Mm -hmm. And one thing that Judy and I and, and Veronica talk about is that, you know, it's not clear what the right level should be. You know, I mean, the right level should not be 100. <laughs> we don't need everyone who loses their job at a mass layoff to go back to, to college, uh, whether that's community college or four-year college. But given this sort of structural uh, trend, we don't think the right number is zero either right. or, or close to zero. So th those are uh, two of the exciting displaced worker papers that uh, I've been very fortunate to, to work on uh, over the last several years. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been uh, a, a, both a cool experience for me as a, as a new researcher, uh, learning about the field, but then also, of course, learning about these issues that I, that I care about. So you mentioned that, you know, displaced workers typically um you know, make less in maybe their next endeavor, or maybe when they get back into the job market, they make considerably less. Do you have an exact idea or estimate of, you know, how long that would be? So like four quarters, eight quarters, or is the evidence not there to kind of suggest that uh, time period, time frame? Uh, we find that this is actually one of the most, um, I would say the, the one of the most well-established findings in, empir in empirical economics is that for the average worker, the their average wage never recovers um, okay. to the same level. It, it's, you know, it, uh, it really flatlines probably after maybe two or three years, uh, depends on the data set that you're looking at. But uh, yeah, this is a pretty robust finding, both uh, not only in the United States where we use Ohio data, but the seminal paper on this used Pennsylvania data, a recent AER paper last year, same, you know, similar question, displaced workers uses like Washington state data. So not only within the United States, but even like uh, you could find a whole bunch of papers using German data that document the same earnings scarring pattern. That, that's very striking that we, you know, it, it, I think to me, it just, it shows that um, perhaps economists, uh, you know, have, have uh, at least going back a couple of decades 
underestimated the cost of job loss because this is a, just a, a finding that keeps getting replicated over and over. Mm -hmm. And it does not mean that workers who, you know, certainly there are workers who get displaced and then they end up finding another job and they actually end up earning more than they right. actually uh, initially would have, which is an encouraging thing. But uh, on average, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's, you know, you, you don't get back to the same level that, uh, that, that you would have been at had you not been displaced. That's cool. Yeah, that's definitely uh, interesting to hear. It's really cool to hear about your uh, research on displaced workers. Uh, just curious, do you have anything like lined up or any kind of questions or ideas that you want to try out um, that you want to share? Well, in addition to, of course, the uh, yeah, famously arduous and long research process of you know t turning around papers and, and, and you know, resubmitting them. Uh, in addition to that, you know, I would certainly like to address the, the skill bias technological change uh, question in some capacity. Uh, another area of economics that I'm, I'm interested in, or another area of labor economics that I'm interested in, I, I tend to have a narrow scope, but is uh, occupational licensing really fascinates me. And, and there, there is some, there's a lot of economic, I should say, there's some economics research on it. Uh, there's a, an economist named Morris Kleiner at the University of Minnesota who, who seems to be the king of this research. He has more papers in this than, than uh, almost everyone else combined. But uh, it, it's some large fraction, like 25% uh, or 30% of the labor market um, for uh, is occupationally licensed, you know, whether that's like a licensing for nursing or like passing the bar for lawyers, uh, obviously medical licenses, but even licenses for, you know, barbers and in a couple states, uh, florists have to be licensed, and you, you get this like very large spread of occupations. You know, um, certainly like the massage therapists, uh, a whole bunch of jobs that uh, like the requirement in the state is you have to like you know do this upfront training, and uh, that that basically like restricts the labor supply into the occupation, but it raises the wage. Mm -hmm. And economists, their intuition is often that this is not good for uh, for welfare. And in fact, there's a couple of papers out there sort of convincingly making this case that overall for, for consumer welfare, because the, the, the price just gets passed on to the consumer. And certainly one reason behind occupational licensing is the safety that you, you don't want an unlicensed doctor doing your surgery. And most people agree on that, but like the, the lower down the uh, riskiness of the occupation that, that you go in terms of the consequence of error, uh, you know, there's an argument that, okay, maybe you don't need these stringent licensing, licensing requirements, you could allow more workers to, to enter the occupation that would lower prices that would be better for for consumer welfare. Um, so I, I'm interested in that uh, in that area of, of uh, labor economics as well. And I guess like my only other thing to add to it too is that I certainly buy the argument that it, it, uh, it could be welfare enhancing to basically reduce uh, excessive occupational uh, regulations uh, through occupational licensing. But I do wonder, sort of going back to what we talked about, uh, earlier about the skills bias technological change mm -hmm. where the middle school jobs are sort of declining. You have fewer and fewer of them. I, I sort of do wonder quantitatively just how big of a force um, occupational licensing could be for, in some sense, serving as a countervailing force against that because it is basically allowing some occupations, uh, perhaps in the middle school, uh, like some of those middle school occupations, to be capturing some rents by restricting the labor supply. Mm -hmm. And so in some sense, you, you almost wonder in a world without any occupational licensing for you know, uh, HVAC and for barbers and some of these middle school jobs, like the trades, you could almost imagine that skill bias technological change would have decreased the, the employment share of middle skill workers by an even larger magnitude. So, so maybe occupational licensing actually uh, 
plays a story in that, and that mm-hmm. skills by his technological change that I, I talked about. But it's a very specific area of labor economics. And, there, and there's a, a professor that I'm actually working with here uh, at Stanford named Brad Larson, who's uh, undertaking a few projects on occupational licensing. So I'm actually excited to get to work with him. This is very, very recent um, getting to work with him. Cool. So uh, hopefully that'll take me somewhere. Dope. That's nice. Um, so yeah, that's that's very interesting to hear about kind of your interests in labor economics, both like from a personal level um, and also just hearing about your takes on kind of the hottest topics of, re- of research in your view. And of course, hearing about your research is always is always a pleasure to hearing about what you're passionate about. Just under the branch of economics, do you have a, a particular e- economist? It could be labor economists. It could, doesn't have to be labor economists, but do you have a particular economist that you look up to right now? I would say I, probably my favorite economist is uh, David Otter, just by the, the various types of work that I've seen him uh, uh, do. Where it, I, I would say that the other thing you talk about, like, oh, what drew you to economics? I remember when I was a junior coming across some of his research. And then like, once I saw that, I'm like, oh, this is like, this is really cool. Like, like this is what economists do. Okay. Like I, I'm, I'm definitely going to keep, keep going in it. Yeah. It, it was actually, it's an interesting you know, example. Cause I, I still am motivated by a lot of the questions that David Otter tries to tackle today. Mm-hmm. But, uh, th- that was also what motivated me in the first place to sort of pursue economics. Yeah. I, I would, I would credit him uh, as, as one of many deserving people right. in the field right is there is there any other economists you want to particularly shout out like i don't have much clout on this show hopefully if it becomes big <laughs> enough that oh you know they'll um see it but is there anyone else you want to like shout out in terms of not only your development but um uh you know someone you look up to or you find their research cool yeah so i, I would say uh, stephanie stancheva who i i was really fortunate to uh work with one summer uh the summer that i worked in uh, in boston i i did some part-time ra work for her and and uh you, you talk about like there's so many incredible people in this field that yeah. you just are so fortunate to meet but uh you know she is uh really uh advancing the frontier of optimal taxation literature and and research uh in, in a, uh, a really impressive way like given just how, how young she is and and uh you know, she's sort of been able to uh, you know communicate uh issues of, of inequality and capital and, and income taxation and you know she's already had some uh, very influential papers uh, both within the field but then also just as a recognized as like a public economist more broadly and i think that she's on like the uh, France's equivalent of the Council of Economic Advisors. So uh, it, it was pretty exciting to get to work for her. And she was just a good mentor for the summer that I got to know her. And uh, it's really been exciting to sort of continue to see her star rise. Uh, so so I, I would I would also give a, a shout out to, to Stephanie Stancheva at Harvard. Cool, cool. That's really cool to hear. So we've heard about pretty much everything economics and all about your personal journey. It's been really fun and definitely, I mean, there's some things that I've just learned today too. So um thank you so much for sharing your stories um i thought we'd do a little fun thing so this will be the what i would like to call the quote-unquote uh q a game so basically Mm. i'm going to ask you 10 questions and you want i want you to respond as um fast as possible or basically the first answer that comes to your mind let's say okay sounds good all right so first question last thing you ate Last thing I ate was scrambled eggs this morning. Okay. Um, favorite color? It's red. Okay. Last thing you did outside the house? 
I went for a bike ride to the neighboring suburb uh, just east of Palo Alto. Cool. Uh, last song you listened to? Uh, that would have been, I, I don't know the uh, song, but I'll shout out the band. It's called Mischief Brew, and they are a folk punk band from Philadelphia that uh, has a, a lot of really good tracks in there. They're sort of an obscure bit. I'm not the type of person that listens to a lot of obscure bands. It's, it's a lot of mainstream stuff for me, but I, I like Mischief Brew. So. Okay, cool. Last TV show you watched? Uh, I just started watching Billions, and I think that was the last. Uh, I, I just finished up, uh, season one of Billions. Okay, <laughs> so, cool. um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, how many hours of sleep do you get per day? It's gotten better since college. Uh, I I now get on average, and I'm tracking this now, uh, uh, seven hours a night. Seven hours a night. Well, what were you doing uh, before? I, 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 on average, oh gosh, it was it was like five and a half probably. Okay. I think yeah. I think I've regressed. I think I've gone the opposite direction. I'm doing like five six hours now. So, <laughs> well, well, they, they say as you get older, you can sustain that though. So if you were getting more younger, then that's a good thing. <laughs> that's 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 very encouraging to hear. But I mean, hopefully you didn't catch wind of that as I sent you like a response email at like three a.m. or something like that. Something crazy. All right, seventh question: favorite New York Fed memory. I think my favorite memory that was, I guess, you know, is not outside the realm of monetary policy, but I think it qualifies is I loved when the New York Fed brought in Andy Byford, who at the time was the chair of the MTA, you know, the, the uh, Transportation Commission in New York. Uh, he came in and he sort of talked up his uh, plan for the New York City uh, transit system, you know, which was uh, basically to, to, to modernize the signaling system and uh, improved bus speed. And, and he was just, he was such a dynamic for the presenter. You know, he, he loved trains like, like <laughs> just about anybody I've ever met. And, uh, he, he was, I, I was totally sold on, on his direction for New York. Cool. <laughs> All right. All right. Number eight, Shake Shack or in and out I think I like Shake Shack and I, I, oh man, uh, yeah, I, I gotta go Shake Shack. I have not had in and out while I've been here in California, but I've taken a couple of West Coast trips in the last couple of years, um, and I've gotten in and out plenty of times. And it's, it's quite good. Um, it's very bare bones. And I, I, <laughs> I lived in college. I lived above a Shake Shack. Um, okay. <laughs> for, probably wasn't good for me, but I, so I'm going to let go with Shake Shack on that. Okay. Um, don't be offended, West Coast. He, he's, he's an East Coast yeah. boy, so yeah, <laughs> you, you can understand his answer. <laughs> All right, uh, East Coast versus West Coast. Which do you prefer more? Uh, but my yeah, my heart, uh, you know, perhaps in in uh, uh, in concert with the my answer to the last question, I'd say my heart is still with the East Coast. But I have been really pleasantly surprised about uh, the degree to which I'm liking the West Coast. Okay, uh, I mean, gosh, today it was a high of uh, 75 degrees, and you know, we went biking, and it's uh, you know, people are very relaxed out here. I mean, it's as advertised. I knew that's what I was uh, doing, getting into. So a lot of the things I like about the the, uh, the the West Coast, but um, and I think it's mitigated in some sense that I don't I don't have a car out here, so I, I haven't been able to get around quite as much. But uh, like the transportation in New York City, I think was amazing, and you know how how you could easily move about the city of eight million, and then you, could, you when you did have a car, you could go somewhere and you'd be in a whole new city in like an hour because everything is is uh, relatively dense, and uh, just uh, it's it's an older part of the country is a lot more unique little like obscure places that, that people don't know about. So for a whole lot, a lot of reasons, uh, both, you know, personal and social and, and, and all that, um, and geographic, I, I think I like the East coast. 
All right, I'll be I'll be waiting for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I will, will look forward to making my way back to New York. All right, last question.、Um, one thing you miss about New York? I can only give you one. I mean, so you, you can't, this is a podcast form, so、uh, this doesn't mean anything to anyone. But Kevin, who's looking at my webcam, as you can see, the、uh, New York City subway map that I have just over my shoulder. But the the thing that I miss about New York is, you know, I played、uh, I played pickup、uh, like touch football with、uh, our, our esteemed colleague Jason Bram and a lot of his friends. On the Upper West Side. Well, actually, and again, Kevin, you of course joined me、uh, one time. Well, we,、yeah. so、that was when we played in Morningside Park. But then、uh, after that, soon after that, we switched over to Riverside Park.、Right. And so I, you know, th- throughout my two years there, I was always going up on Saturday mornings and playing uh, uh, touch football with、uh, Jason and his buddies,、uh, who were mostly all lived on the Upper West Side. And I like that about New York, where there are enough people around to sort of do that. And you know, it was、uh, you know a pretty vibrant, vibrant community. But、um, And I, gosh, I almost feel like I could have given a better answer than that because there's so much I like about it. But I—that's the one I gave, and so I'm going to stick with.、It. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Definitely, community for, for, is definitely for you.、Important. Well, for you, it's got to be the ultimate community. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, without without the pandemic, I would be I would be going crazy、mm-hmm. right now. So,、right. and who knows? Maybe this podcast wouldn't have existed if if it was still ongoing. So, you know, there、mm-hmm. are there are some upsides, downsides here and there. But yeah, community definitely for me. But okay,、mm-hmm. cool. But yeah, that was all the questions I had for the game today. Thank you so much for participating, and as always, wonderful answers. Well, I, I appreciate it. It, 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 it reminds me of, of、uh, when when John Oliver started his show. You know, he does like like a, a topic like per week, and like his second ever episode that he did was on like the death penalty, <laughs> just a very heavy topic for a comedy show. Yeah. And and he made jokes about how like hey, either the show is going to get canceled or it's guaranteed to only get better. <laughs> Because you can't get worse than the death penalty, so in some sense, I, I hope I'm, I'm、uh, that version of that of what that, how that was for John Oliver.、Um, you know, you, your podcast is going to continue to grow, and you're、oh. going to get more listeners, and it's it's going to be even better week after week or, or month、you. after Thank month. Thank you. Thank you so much.、Uh, appreciate appreciate the <laughs>、yeah. the vote of confidence there. Thank you so much for for being on the show. It was wonderful to、oh, have you. Thank you for having me. Um, and is there anything you want to plug, like any kind of social media or any kind of website? Where can we find your research, stuff like that?、Uh, yeah, I, I have a, I have a, a website that, that I created. It's、uh, the URL. It's、uh, bemoreeconomics dot com. So yeah,、uh, I, I'll, I'll plug that. All right, cool. So bemoreeconomics dot com is the link to find all his updates on his you know recent research. Um, and maybe some other cool stuff that he'll add. We don't know. Stay tuned.、Um, but yeah, I, 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 I do have an interesting page on there where I, I、uh, abandon infrastructure that I visit、um, at random spots on the East Coast, whether in Maine or Pennsylvania or West Virginia. I have a page on it. That's the most exciting page on, on that. There you、website. go. There you go. All the more reason to visit visit the page.、Um, but yeah, once again, thank you to our guest Brendan Moore.、Um, wonderful to have you on the show. If you want to know more, or you want to learn more about the show, or stay up to date, be sure to follow the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found.、Um, hope you enjoyed the interview, and I have a couple more interviews planned as well.、Um, so yeah, thanks so much. See you next time on the Social Science Kaleidoscope.